Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm uh, going to speak to, uh, to the issue of the free rider, uh, which George Williams uh, uh, created uh, as a malign entity, as it were, if you want to look at things morally or as a uh, interference uh, and predator against altruists. First of all, uh, the genetic paradox of altruism was rather nicely but very loosely defined by Charles Darwin. Darwin uh, had two answers, one of which was kin selection, although he didn't call it that. And uh, I'm going to be speaking about altruism uh, with my own definition, as it were, which is that altruism involves extrafamilial generosity. That is, kin selection is a separate domain as far as I'm concerned here. Uh, Darwin also uh, has a famous quote about group selection. He basically felt that a group that had, uh, he was thinking in terms of warfare, a lot of patriots uh, was going to outdo a group that didn't have altruistic patriots, and therefore group selection could operate at a, a analogical uh, uh, basis uh, compared to individual selection. Uh, the early sociobiologists on altruism uh, were uh, Robert Trivers as the sort of uh, seminal uh, idea contributor and Edward O. Wilson and Richard D. Alexander. Wilson, of course, uh, chose reciprocal altruism as a, as a good theory uh, for explaining altruism. <clears throat> and he thought that group selection was problematically weak precisely because of the free rider problem as well as some structural uh, problems as well. Uh, Richard D. Alexander uh, brought in some new ideas, one of which was selection by reputation, uh, also currently uh, called costly signaling in one of its narrower interpretations. Uh, the idea being that uh, the altruist would be chosen, uh, as Randy was saying, uh, uh, would be ch chosen preferentially uh, and therefore would have advantages of cooperation uh, over non-altruists. Uh, uh, I should mention that Alexander also uh, was interested in group selection. He knew the problems uh, and prehistoric warfare uh, was a major unknowable Therefore, he sort of left it alone. With respect to social selection, uh, I'm going to uh, define it here uh, for humans, and uh, this definition could probably be contested, but I would say social selection takes place when people uh, select other people uh, as partners, for example, uh, on the basis of their preferences. And... Uh, Alexander's uh, selection by positive reputation is one example. Uh, he also mentions selection by negative reputation in passing, at least, and I'm going to be uh, elaborating on that here, uh, because I think an important additional mechanism is free rider suppression. That is, in human groups, free riders are suppressed, both at the level of genotype, but less so there, but also at the level of phenotype. Well, who are these notorious free riders? Uh, normally, they're considered to be cheats. Uh, Bernie Madoff comes to mind. Uh, but uh, they, the, the free rider 
uh, in classical evolutionary modeling has been the cheater. And I would like to suggest that if, if you rethink it a bit, that bullies are the biggest free riders of all. Humans are a hierarchical species, so are most uh, monkeys and apes. And uh, there's good evidence that there's a genetic reward in being at the top of a hierarchy. So bullying, uh, to me, is simply another case of free riding. Uh, somehow a cheat makes you think of free rider. A bully is taking a free ride, but looks more like a power figure. For some reason, they haven't been uh, brought into modeling. Uh, how do you slow down free riding? Because the more you slow down free riding, the more of a chance uh, altruistic genes have of making it. And um, a free rider uh, can be slowed down in two ways. One way is to, uh, at the level of phenotype, simply to make sure they don't express their free riding tendencies, in which case the genes could stay in place, but there would still be not a, dis a disadvantage for altruists because at the level of phenotype, the free riders are not taking advantage. Uh, well, one way you do this is by the threat of punishment. If you have a human group that's moralistic, uh, Trivers called it moralistic aggression, very, very universal in hunter-gatherers and all humans. Uh, you, people start worrying about outcomes in terms of groups turning on them, and therefore, uh, let's say, a bullying free rider uh, will be cut down. Or if, if he, if he <clears throat> either will be cut down or... If he, if he refrains from his behavior, then he can stay uh, in a decent position uh, genetically. But if he free rides, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if he free rides too hard, as it were, uh, he will be uh, executed, capital punishments, uh, universal and hunter-gatherers, or other bad things can happen to him, like ostracism. Uh, people avoid him, he can't cooperate anymore, and so forth. <coughs> Uh, so I would say that this is a human type of social selection, in some ways rather unique, even though in chimpanzees especially, but also bonobos, uh, we do see uh, social preferences uh, working against bullies. Well, how did we get there uh, in terms of being able to act as groups to suppress free riding or punish free riders. Um, if we look at uh, Ancestral Pan, which is my name for the ancestor that we share with chimps and bonobos uh, roughly six million years ago, plus or minus a million. Uh, if we look at Ancestral Pan, we'll see that there were subordinate coalitions that worked against high-ranking males. Uh, there have been several cases of probable disappearances, let's say, uh, which might have been death, certainly wounding, uh, certainly exile from the group, which is dangerous in a chimpanzee species uh, because you're out in, in a peripheral area where you could be caught by an enemy patrol. So uh, bullying uh, has been treated as a problem by groups of chimpanzees. And also bonobos have a, a rather different pattern, which I'll get to presently. Uh, my hypothesis is that when people began to hunt large game, 
they had some novel problems, that the game had to be shared equitably and an alpha male system wouldn't work. Therefore, they had to get rid of the alpha male system in order to do this. And um, that will, that's a theme that I will be following up on. Uh, but now let's uh, look at uh, some of the contributors uh, to the ancestral pan uh, picture. Uh, first of all, chimpanzees regularly go on patrol. And what we're talking about here is the capacity of a group or all the males in a group to have a common purpose and to act on it aggressively. That is, what are the underpinnings of the moralistic aggression that we see in humans? This is a patrol at Kibali in Uganda. Uh, patrols have been studied quite well now at quite a few field sites. Uh, they, uh, it's a systematic uh, scouting of territory, looking for uh, members of other communities to attack. Uh, there have been fatalities uh, recorded across the breadth of Africa. And this is just a nasty picture of uh, one chimp uh, displaying at a, a dead enemy, but we'll pass that on. Uh, bonobos. Uh, bonobo females uh, cooperate all the time, routinely, whereas uh, with chimps it's rather episodic, uh, to uh, basically counter the domination of males. And uh, males don't form coalitions among bonobos, so uh, they are on their own against coalitions of females that uh, basically have, in spite of the fact that they uh, can't go up against a male individually very often, uh, the females are considered to be co-dominant with males. And uh, if we're thinking about a bullying free rider, I chose this particular picture off the internet because the male to the right uh, has the look uh, So ancestral pan cooperated as coalitions in threatening or attacking neighbors. Uh, bonobos do this as well. Uh, they, uh, they so far haven't had fatalities. One wounding, wounding was uh, reported by Kano. But territorial encounters uh, involve larger groups chasing smaller groups, so it's clear the males are acting as coalitions uh, against uh, enemies, as it were. Uh, Ancestral pan uh, cooperated in coalitions then because humans also do this. And uh, therefore, if chimps, bonobos, and humans all do it, ancestral pan did it. Uh, the name of that game is parsimony. Uh, ancestral pan specifically was engaged in counter-dominant coalitions. That is, uh, they went... They go up against individuals who individually have power, but can, the power can be eroded by a coalition going up against them. And because they go against bullies, uh, humans do it. All hunter-gatherers of the nomadic type are egalitarian. They basically don't countenance bullies at all. Uh, chimps and bonobos at least whittle away at their power. So... Uh, Free rider suppression in the sense of bullying free riders as opposed to cheats is uh, ancient. So we've looked at some of the bases of group cooperation. 
uh, and now we're going to talk uh, more about humans. Uh, once we had uh, active large game hunting uh, with ungulates un- un- as uh, the targets, uh, people pretty much had to cooperate. Uh, this happened at 250,000 years ago, and uh, they had to cooperate simply because of the very limited weapons they had. And if they didn't have to cooperate in hunting, uh, which I think they did, they certainly had to cooperate in sharing large carcasses. All of a sudden, you have a huge package of food that comes in very intermittently, very unpredictably, and not too often. And to get nutrition out of this, to keep an entire hunting team uh, healthy and powerful, as it were, in the field, uh, you need to share the meat pretty equitably. And that's not going to happen Uh, the way chimps and bonobos share meat because there's always sort of a meat hog who who presides over the meat and then uh, some get it and some don't. But uh, there's never universal sharing uh, of equal portions. And hunter-gatherers actually make this happen. Uh, There's also cooperation in reducing alpha power uh, because you have to have an egalitarian order in order to share meat in this way. And there's also cooperation in threatening or fighting territorial competitors. So there were a lot of different expressions of the human capacity to uh, cooperate in groups, uh, mostly male groups, uh, in accomplishing various different types of uh, objectives. And this is just a a little bit of fun uh, to look at some... uh, rock art. Uh, this simply shows uh, two men cooperating in, in a hunt. Here we see that uh, hunting dangerous prey with weapons can be confrontational, so in a way it's a practice for both warfare or raiding or social control. Uh, this uh, particular slide is a bit ambiguous. It looks to me like it's partly hunting and partly fighting. Uh, And I simply put it in because I think the two are conjoined in the sense of cooperation being involved. And here we have uh, fighting, uh, which is individual. That is, it looks to be uh, more at the level of a few individuals fighting. And uh, here we have uh, fighting by... uh, it looks like about 11, but there's some of this picture is, has eroded, but at least 11 uh, actors. Uh, and if you think of a typical hunting band that is large enough to share meat and has enough hunters to bring the meat in often enough so that it can be an important part of the diet, you need about five hunters per band. There's some very good theory out of human behavioral ecology that suggests that this is... Uh, something that all social carnivores uh, engage in. So here we have uh, just about the right number of uh, males, adult males, uh, fighting to suggest that it's between two bands with about five hunters per band, with 11 total. And it may be a little bit larger, but bands generally tend to be 20 to 30 uh, persons, which gives you five or six active hunters. And finally, we have the only uh, recorded instance of non-literate human uh, warfare, but it isn't exactly warfare. Uh, 
It's a New Guinea great fight. Uh, this is uh, an example of uh, two very large freighters or patra groups coming together, and they basically strut around and do maneuvers, and occasionally a couple of people get killed, and then they go home, all go home. Uh, the same people also do pre-dawn genocidal attacks, so this is a more like a medieval tourney, but it does show, uh, you can see even in the picture, uh, in the slide, you can see that there is patterning. Uh, these people are making maneuvers, as it were. It's highly coordinated and cooperative. Uh, archaic Homo sapiens, uh, 250,000 years ago, had probably had at times cooperative warfare, uh, depending on population density and defensibility of resources. Um, they carried cooperative counter-domination much farther than their predecessors, I would guess, uh, due to large-game hunting, which created the need to get rid of the alpha male system so meat could be distributed efficiently. So uh, alpha behavior, uh, free rider behavior, was thoroughly suppressed by social control. Uh, social selection today. Uh, in human hunter-gatherers, bullies are free riders, probably much more than cheaters. And the threat of moralistic aggression by the entire band, the rest of the band, largely holds them in check. Uh, there's a wonderful book by anthropologist Jean Briggs, which uh, talks about an Eskimo personality, who, a guy who really wanted to be aggressive, but he was so scared of people catching on to it that he was constantly stifling his aggressive uh, nature, as it were. Uh, when people get out of hand, uh, and I've looked at many hunter-gatherers in this respect, uh, when they get out of hand, they are uh, likely to get killed. Well, let's uh, talk about implications for the study of altruism. Free riders are a major problem in modeling the selection of extrafamilial generosity. Uh, Randy's already talked about models, but selection by reputation, reciprocal altruism, and group selection are models that are particularly vulnerable to free riding. Uh, and I believe that future modeling, uh, if we're going to get at the bottom of the altruism paradox, and I'm not sure we're 90% of the way there, uh, it, I think we need to look at free rider suppression because humans are the only species I can think of that act as moralistically aggressive groups to suppress free riders at the level of phenotype. And if they're suppressed at the level of phenotype, then they can't really do any damage to the altruists. And this changes the modeling quite radically. Thank you. What I'm going to do today is talk about some concepts that we've already heard about. First of all, a very brief review about kin selection. And then I'm going to go on to talk about the notion of suppression of competition or suppression of free riders within groups. I'm going to do this in the context of the history of life. So we can really get a general idea about biology, about how cooperation's evolved, just to set a context for studying humans. And so let's 
first of all, do a very simple review of kin selection, just the basic principles, just as background. So when we see a mother lion or a mother elephant feeding their babies, we understand what's going on, right? The basic unit of success in biology is reproduction. And the basic unit of reproduction are parents providing resources for their offspring. But we know that in many cases, organisms do provide help to individuals that are not their direct offspring, but they might help their siblings, brothers and sisters, cousins, and so on. So we know that bees and ants will raise their brothers and sisters rather than raising their own direct offspring. Randy mentioned that squirrels give alarm calls. An alarm call is a dangerous thing. It calls attention to the individual who gives the call. And that squirrels are known to do this primarily when they're around their sisters and half-sisters. And they won't do it when the individuals around are non-relatives. So that's another example of individuals taking on risk for themselves in order to help other individuals that are not their direct offspring but are kin. Even in bacteria now, there's a huge amount of evidence that bacteria behave much more cooperatively when they're around close genetic kin. Bacteria will, for example, secrete molecules that help to break down resources that other bacteria in the group can suck up. But when the degree of kinship among the bacteria is much lower, the bacteria don't do this as much, and they tend to compete much more with each other. So the degree of integration and cooperation among bacteria is strongly influenced by genetic relatedness. And this has actually turned out to be very important. And more and more, we're going to see this in biomedical research, understanding the role of kinship and infection. So this is a way going in the other direction from this symposium, my own interests tend to be looking at very simple organisms and how these ideas apply. And we tend to think of early human groups as being mostly small kin groups where individuals are cooperating with brothers and sisters and other kin. But we know that kinship's not enough in the history of life, even in simple biology, to understand the cooperation that we see in nature, because we see many examples in nature of individuals acting in ways that seem cooperative with other individuals that are not genetic kin at all. This is not just in humans, but throughout the history of life. So going back to humans for a second, though, as a puzzle, and this is to some extent what this symposium is about, we know that through the history of human, through human history, group sizes have gotten larger. Perhaps kinship was very important in small groups initially, but now we have large nation states and, and groups where clearly individuals have gone far beyond kinship. So what are the general principles that might span all the way up from through the history of life and on to humans? And the idea that I'm going to focus on, you can think of as constraints on competition within groups, things that tend to suppress the ability of individuals to compete with each other. So let's just imagine that we're in a group together, and there's some resources, and there's no rules at first or constraints, and so there's some resources, and I could take those resources for myself from you, and that might be a benefit to me. But at the same time, if I'm starting to take the resources from you, it might be a little harder for us to cooperate and act as a cohesive group if we needed to act cohesively. So what could then make us act more cohesively as a group? Prevent me from taking these resources, which are, at least in the short run, a benefit to me. And one thing that would be, in a very abstract sense, would be mechanisms that acted to suppress internal competition within groups. If there was some mechanism so I wasn't allowed to or was prevented in taking things from you so that there was a fair distribution of resources in the group, 
then the only way that I can improve my own success, I can't compete with you because there are rules, the only way I can increase my own success is by acting cooperatively with you to increase the efficiency of our group, perhaps in competition against other groups. So it's an extremely simple idea, but the power is tremendous. If there are mechanisms that suppress competition, individuals can only improve their own success by acting cohesively and cooperatively within, the, within a group. Now, I want to talk about that idea and develop it through the sort of, first of all, give you a little background from what is roughly speaking moral philosophy in humans. And then we'll go back and talk about that through the history of biology so we can see the structure of the concept. So I think that perhaps the first person who's often credited with this idea of sort of suppression of competition, it's hard to say who first said it, but the person who now gets cited the most is Adam Smith. Now you know the name Adam Smith from The Wealth of Nations. Of course, a very famous book thought to be the first discussion of free markets and competition, capitalism, and also ascribed to Adam Smith is the notion that free markets are very efficient for groups, right? If you simply leave individuals to pursue their own selfish interests, the invisible hand and out emerges beautiful cooperative markets where everybody's better off. Now, Adam Smith knew that that was nonsense, okay? But nonetheless, everybody quotes Adam Smith as having said it. But Adam Smith didn't believe that or certainly wrote against it. In fact, Adam Smith wrote a second book, which is also not as famous, but is quite well known. It was called Moral Sentiments. And I want to give you not a quote from Adam Smith. I'll tell you about that in a second. But from Egbert Lee, who was writing about Adam Smith. And what Egbert Lee said was, Adam Smith argued that if individuals had sufficient common interest in their group's good, they would combine to suppress activities of members acting contrary to the group's welfare. Okay, so individuals in a human group, if they can see that there are problems, they can band together to suppress that internal competition, and that's going to promote the group welfare, which is the idea I've been discussing with you. Now, if you read what Adam Smith said, he wrote in the 18th century, and the language is a little different. It's not exactly clear. It looks like that's what he meant. I think it's a reasonable interpretation. But turning to more modern studies, again, sort of in what we might call moral philosophy, there's a very famous idea, which is now widely known, called the Veil of Ignorance. You may have heard of this. It was published in a book by John Rawls in 1971. And what Rawls was wondering about is, how can we form a just and fair society? What are the ways in which we might do that? And what Rawls said is, okay, this is what we're going to do to form a just and fair society. We're going to get together as a group, and we're going to make the rules for our group, the moral laws, the legal system, and so on. And we're going to make those rules as they apply to rich people or poor people, to powerful people, or to people who are weak and subordinate. And we're going to make all those rules and laws to govern all the interactions from behind a veil of ignorance about our own position in society. And then, right? And then we're going to be randomly assigned to a position. So we don't know if we're going to be rich, we don't know if we're going to be strong, but we might also be weak or poor. But before that, we're going to agree that the rules are fair before we know where we go, behind a veil of ignorance. So these are quotes from Rawls. A just society establishes rules that individuals regard as fair from behind a veil of ignorance about their position within society. An individual may in practice end up on one end or the other of any particular social interaction. That is to say, you're going to be assigned randomly to a position. So you better think that the overall structure is okay. Now, this notion of randomization is extremely powerful in terms of creating fairness. But so far, I've been talking to you about 
human moral philosophy. But I started out by telling you that I was going to tell you about the history of life. So how does this idea of randomization apply throughout the history of life? And in fact, it applies extremely well and very importantly throughout the history of biology. There's a phenomenon in biology that's called fair meiosis. And biologists actually use that word, fair meiosis. Now, what is that? Well, you probably know that when you were born, you got some genes from your mother and some genes from your father. And basically, for every gene that you have, for the most part, you've got one from your mother and one from your father. And these genes are on chromosomes, so they're packaged that way. So you have lots of chromosomes, and they're paired up. Mother's chromosome, father's chromosome, mother's chromosome, father's chromosome. So that's what your genes are like. And when you go to make a baby, sperm or egg, we call sperm or egg a gamete. So you make a gamete. And when you make a gamete, do you pass your mother's gene or your father's gene through the gamete? Because the gamete only contains half of your genes because you're going to mate with somebody and the other half's going to come from your mates. So you're going to make a baby with two copies. So do you pass your mother's or your father's? And the answer is, it's random, right? There's a 50-50 chance, for the most part, for each of your genes that it'll be your mother's or your father's gene. So we say each gamete has an equal or random chance of transmitting the maternal or paternal copy. Randomization puts each chromosome behind a veil of ignorance. If we want to say it that way. Biologists usually don't say it that way. But it's a reasonable point. Because the only way that a chromosome can increase its own contribution, number of copies of a chromosome to the future, is to increase the total number of babies that you make. Because each chromosome has a random chance of making it into each baby. So chromosomes can only increase their own reproduction by increasing the total number of babies you produce. Now, if chromosomes, if one chromosome, your father's, say, or your, let's say your mother's, could outcompete your father's chromosome and get into more babies, that chromosome would increase in frequency because all that matters is outcompeting and making more copies. And that would mean that your chromosomes could compete and you really wouldn't be an individual anymore so much because there would be competition within you over reproduction. And that may sound weird, but it happens throughout genetics. We call that meiotic drive, where there's competition between chromosomes. So the very notion of you as an individual, which you accept so fully and completely, is actually completely dependent through the history of life on this notion of randomization and fairness. That's what makes you into an individual. Because it joins together all of your chromosomes into a common interest. The only way each gene and chromosome can increase its success historically is by increasing the success of you as an individual. So chromosomes, we said that, chromosomes can increase their own success, right? So, so Egbert Lee, he's a very flowerly language. It's always fun to quote him. The many genes of the genome repress drive. That's competition between chromosomes. Repress drive is if we had to do with a parliament of genes which so regulated itself as to prevent cobbles of a few conspiring for their own selfish profit at the expense of the commonwealth. Okay, that's very flowery. But it's actually not very far off because we know that fair meiosis doesn't just happen if you're a biologist. There's never integration and cooperation without something behind it. Fair and in fact, in your genome and in the genomes of all organisms that have this process are a lot of mechanisms that suppress internal competition. We know that because we see it break down and we see the unity of the genome breaking down in some cases. So for the most part, the unity of the genome that makes you an individual holds, but it doesn't just start that way. That emerged from the history of life. And it wasn't the default ancestral condition. So if you ever got taught genetics, you get taught Mendelian genetics as if that was God created Mendelian genetics, and that's how it works. But that isn't what happened in the history of life. Something happened 
to cause integration. So fermiosis is one example. A second example, which is just a simple one to describe because it's a simple experiment, was done by Jessica Fleck on pigtailed macaques. We're talking about suppression of competition in general. And this is a simple experiment. Here's a little enclosure of macaques, and these are M's or males. And the males act to suppress competition in the group. They break up fights, and they kind of keep the peace, and they keep things under control. And Jessica was interested in, well, how much do these males really help in integrating the society? How, how could she tell? So she did what all biologists do when they want to understand something, which is that they take it away or they knock it out. So she did what she called the behavioral knockout experiment. She took the males and she stuck them outside so they couldn't get into the group. And what happened? Well, all hell broke loose. They started fighting a lot more, and there was a real breakdown in social integration. And so her own, using her own language, she said, we observed that when policing, they call these males policing because they break up things and kind of keep the order. We observed that when policing is operational, group members build larger social networks characterized by greater partner diversity and increased potential for socially positive contagion and cooperation. Without policing, high conflict frequency and severity leads to more conservative social interactions and a less integrated society. So that's a fancy way of saying all hell broke loose. But that's basically, if you read the paper, that's what happened. There was really a real breakdown in social order. A lot of the standard cooperative behaviors, grooming, affiliate behaviors of primates, really decreased tremendously without that imposition. And these males were, were not just breaking up fights with kin. They were sort of acting really in the group as an overall structural organizers. So we've heard about Richard Alexander. Richard Alexander was a biologist. He studied crickets, actually. It was his main life's work. But he became interested in humans, and he's often quoted in these studies about human sociality because he was looking over the history of life and really trying to understand from the history of life and what we know about cooperation in the history of life, how we could understand what happened in human evolutionary history. This transition in particular from small groups to as group sizes got larger and larger throughout human history and how we could understand the transcendence of, of kin groups. And Alexander said, the function of laws is to regulate the reproductive and I think selfish strivings of individuals and subgroups within societies in the interest of preserving unity in the larger group. Presumably unity and the larger group feeds back beneficial effects to those that propose, maintain, adjust, and enforce the laws. But really what he's saying is, and he was very interested in roles. He was saying really that laws and, and moral strictures in some sense act to help with group integration. And he was particularly interested in group against group competition. And so in this sense, the integration of groups really depended on this internal suppression of competition through laws and moral strictures and these sorts of things. And so this was his view of human evolutionary history, or human history in any case. Now going back to the history of life, John Maynard Smith was thinking about the span of the history of life and cooperation as I sort of indicated briefly today. And Maynard Smith had this very nice 1988. He said, one can recognize in the evolution of life several revolutions in the way in which genetic information is organized. Again, my point is, we didn't start out with these complex genomes with meiosis, that something that evolved. In each of these revolutions, there has been conflict between selection at several levels, genes and genomes, individuals and groups, and so on. The achievement of individuality at the higher level or cohesiveness of a group at a higher level has required that the disruptive effects of selection at the lower level be suppressed. And so, to me, the two great principles in the history of life of cooperation are kin selection, which gets talked about a lot, 
this notion of suppression of competition internally, it gets mentioned, people sort of understand it. We had one person mention it quite prominently, but the degree to which it's integrated into the very basis of everything we know about the history of life, I think is not as widely appreciated as it should be. To me, kin selection and suppression of competition are the two great forces in the history of life. Now, reciprocity and reciprocal altruism, game theory ideas, okay, that's great for fish and humans, but most of the history of life isn't with fish and humans and brains, right? It's with very simple organisms. And we see these principles then really organizing throughout the history of life. And I think that it's helpful to have that span and perspective when talking about humans. It doesn't answer any particular problem about humans, but certainly if you ever want to read Alexander, you have to understand that background that he's really coming from this perspective. And so I think that's, um, since I don't study humans and I was asked to speak today, I think that's what I could bring to you is something about that biological perspective just to give you a little background and context. So thank you very much. I'm going to continue on the topic of uh, cooperation and altruism. I want to clarify some terms uh, before uh, launching in the talk in itself. Uh, we tend to consider four different outcomes of social behavior, selfish, altruism, cooperation, and spiteful. And generally, it is considered from the cost or the benefit it gives to the actor. And so from this perspective, it's easy to understand why individuals would be selfish or cooperative, whereas it's a puzzle to understand the evolution of altruism and spiteful behavior, as already mentioned. I just want to stress here that some people have actually focused more interest on the recipient side and if you look at them from this point of view, altruism and cooperation would have the same outcome, so that actually some people are using uh, the word cooperation when they actually are meaning altruism. And this has led to some of the confusion that has already been mentioned. As to be expected, and you are going to see it probably many times, the Hamilton rule uh, was... Uh, very influential in explaining uh, the evolution of altruism. And uh, the relatedness factor was the base of uh, this uh, kin selection theory. I want simply to remind people that you have also in this equation uh, the benefit and the costs of the behavior that is performed and that is actually strongly influenced by the ecological conditions under which the behavior is observed. And that's obviously where I'm going to concentrate uh, the, the rest of my talk. Examples of animal cooperation have been numerous. I'm just citing a few of them. Obviously, uh, Bob Hamilton was interested in understanding this puzzle of honeybees workers that are sterile but work all their life to help their sisters. And this was explained to be the classic example of kin selection. Even if we now know it doesn't always work that easily, it's still a textbook example for 
uh, the evolution of algorithms through kin selection. The other one is also mentioned, cooperation, which some people call mutualism, uh, which is the classical case in hunting of hyenas, for sure, where the hunting success increases uh, with the number of hunters taking part in the hunt. The Lions was a textbook example of cooperative hunting. Uh, more recent uh, observations have actually shown it is not the case in the sense that the individual success decreases when more lions are hunted together, and so it was mainly explained by a byproduct of sociality. I could go on listing some examples, uh, just simply we kind of could say that we all agree, uh, except that you may heard maybe already mentioned that it's not so easy, we all agree that you know, cooperation and altruism is observed in animals and in humans. But more recently, there has been strong claims in the literature trying to declare that cooperation and altruism is uniquely human, or is very special in human, and that so non-human animals would not be able to cooperate and be altruist. Some examples of a science paper by Ernest Fair and one of the collaborators about the puzzle of human altruism, where he is claiming very strongly that different from all other animal species, human altruism is very unique. And I wanted to stress that his claim was actually based only on data he has been using uh, with a European subject, to be more precise, a student from the University of Zurich. <laughs> On the other side, there have been other series of claims from the other side saying, you know, as here, chimpanzees are indifferent to the welfare of unrelated group members. Here is a result from uh, Keith Jensen from Mike Tomazella's group in uh, uh, Leipzig, where they were saying chimpanzees are strict maximizers uh, in uh, replication of the ultimate game uh, done with chimpanzees. And what I want to say here that these claims here are again uniquely based on data collected with captive animals, one or at most for John Six paper two groups. Why do we have such a situation? You know, on one side, people would say cooperation, altruism is seen in all elements, and this kind of a new trend, I feel, uh, where they are proposing this strong difference between humans on one side and the other animals on the other side. And I think uh, a lot of it rests on a strong underestimation of the ecology. Let me stress uh, this situation, and I think uh, a part of the problem is uh, I'm sure I'm fully aware that nobody is going to claim I am following the ideas of René Descartes, who said that 300 years ago. But basically, this Cartesian approach is kind of implicitly accepting the fact that whatever the social ecological conditions that an individual uh, of any species is confronted with is not going to affect 
the cognitive development and therefore the expression of some of the behaviors they are presenting. And one of the most typical uh, example of this attitude uh, is the acceptance in some scientific circles without any discussion of data from captive animals as being representative for the whole of the species. Whereas on the other side, the Darwinian approach, a more evolutionary approach, would actually predict that we should see differences in the cognitive achievement that, uh, seen in a species as a function of the socio-ecological condition faced by the individuals. And so we need to look at cognition as, you know, also an ecological adaptation. Let me give you a very few examples of uh, the importance of the ecology on the expression of altruism in humans. Uh, maybe some of you know the work of Joe Andrich and many other people where they have been reproducing this dictator game where the game is basically where you give an amount of money of one individual and he has to share part of it to another individual that he knows is around but he doesn't know who it is. And when you do that in Europe, in the US, people will share on average 40% of the money they have received. And economists were viewing that as a proof of the very strong sharing tendency of humans because they were assuming that humans are purely selfish individuals would maximize the economic reward and they should not share anything. And this was the base, you know, of a long discussion. Uh, Joanne Rich actually compared the sharing tendencies is game in 15 different human groups. You have the American group was about 40, 40 45%, and there is actually then a tremendous decrease of the proportion of the money individuals receive that they are going to share. And on the extreme side here, you would have the Adza, the Tsaminane, uh, that are sharing around 20% only. So you see a strong difference, and this difference has been explained by the tendency of economic integration in those societies. So there was you know, a kind of an ecological explanation for this difference we observe. So there were economists, Levitt and List, have been making um, a small braviary in science two years ago, uh, making us aware of the problems that economists are facing when they try to understand humans' behavior in real life compared in the laboratory. You know, if you think that all US and European students, when they got money, share 42% of the money with unknown individuals, you, as humans, you know, member of the species human, you should realize that there is something that is wrong there. Because whenever I go in the street, even in San Diego, asking for money for a very charitable, interesting causes, I will ne never get money for 40% of the money people have in their pockets from all everybody there. So, obviously, economists 
having the big advantage over other disciplines, economists know how humans behave. So they could realize that actually when you put a human in the lab, he's much more generous than he is in real life. <laughs> and so there is obviously a problem when you want to kind of uh, compare that. So what I wanted just to say with those two examples, and there are many more, I think you know, in humans there is a strong case you know, that the ecology is playing a very important role in our tendency to cooperate or to be altruistic. And so since we all know, you know chimpanzees are our closest living relative, uh, what we observe of the importance of ecology in the expression of altruism in human may have a similar effect in chimpanzees. So here, the group hunt tendencies of chimpanzees when they are hunting red colobus monkeys in, their, in each of these sites. The Gombe chimpanzees, the Mahale chimpanzees, the chimpanzees in Thai I've been working with, and the chimpanzees in Gogo, where John Mitani has been working. And you see a very strong differences between the three populations. In Gogo, they hunt in group, when they hunt almost 100% of the case. Whereas in Gombe, when they, they hunt in group, about, I think in 30% of the case only. So there's a huge difference. And the second graphic, where you only see it's about collaborative hunting, when the chimpanzee is hunting group, how frequently do they organize themselves in performing different complementary roles between the hunters. There is also huge differences in the proportion of the chimpanzee males to organize them as a collaborative hunt, where in 75% of the cases, the hunt, group hunting in Thai is collaborative. In Mahale and in Ngogo, uh, the researchers have never seen this kind of collaborative organization, whereas in Gombe it is seen in one-third of the group hunts. So here again a strong difference. Uh, the explanation was mainly that the hunt taking place in the trees, the structure of the forest can have a huge importance on the success of lone hunter. So if the forest is an interrupted canopy, you can actually corner the prey in an interruption of the forest, and the prey are much more easy to capture. Whereas, if you have a continuous forest, like in the Thai forest, you absolutely need to organize yourself as a group to be successful. Uh, we have seen in the wild three main ecological contexts under which chimpanzees cooperate it's a territorial defense that is seen in all chimpanzees, as Christopher Böhm already mentioned, collaborative hunting, that is a function of the difficulties of obtaining a capture, and predator defense, which is obviously also a function of the intensity of predation pressure on the chimpanzees. And in Thai, this is a very important aspect. Here, the sharing tendency uh, of the chimpanzees, when on the left, sharing for meat, and the meat sharing uh, is a very interesting one because half of the events of meat sharing 
is active in the meat owner facilitating the access to the meat in Thai chimpanzees, whereas it is much less frequently active in Gombe chimpanzees. And the fascinating aspect in Gombe chimpanzees is that uh, they are kind of explaining meat sharing through harassment in the sense that the beggar would make some gestures preventing meat owner from eating. And we have never seen that in uh, Thai chimpanzees. And another graphic, uh, seeing, comparing the tendency of the chimpanzees to shared tool-acquired food. In Thai, here you have an histogram showing that when they are cracking nuts, mothers share actively a lot of the nuts they acquire. And on the right side, Gombe termite fishing, where termites are never shared actively by the mother with their infant. A very interesting, very surprising result. Altruistic adoptions. <laughs> Chimpanzees, uh, obviously, uh, mothers may die, and in half of the case in the Thai forest, the orphans are adopted by another group member, and in half of the case of the adoptions, it's a male that is adopting the orphans in the Thai chimpanzees. And in these two cases, uh, we could actually test for genetic paternity and show that these two males adopting the babies were not the father of the infant, and they were a true case of altruism. So we showed four exological contexts where food sharing happens regularly in chimpanzees for rich clump food. Uh, adoption is seen also in all chimpanzee population. Uh, we may have a higher tendency of male adoptions by Thai chimpanzees than in other population, but female adoption is also common. Uh, infants that are in very threatened situation, especially here when facing leopards or when facing neighboring groups, uh, can be uh, rescued, helped by other group members. And another very intriguing case is the tending of injured individuals that in Gombe has been seen to be strictly restricted within closely related individuals, mother, infant, or siblings, whereas in Thai, it is spread out throughout the whole group and can be provided for many weeks. To just come back on the question of how we can use captive data to understand cooperation and altruism, all the experiments done with chimpanzees on cooperation and altruism have basically uh, provided very mixed results uh, in different, different cases. However, none of them have tested the individuals in the ecological context relevant to wild chimpanzees. And therefore, I think the ecological validity of captive study is extremely questionable uh, when you want to understand cooperation and altruism. Take home message. I think if you want to make claims about altruism and cooperation, we have to be very careful and be population-specific and ecological sensitive when we make this comparison. And this is even more so if you want to contrib 
compare between species. To me, nowadays we have no data showing that cooperation or altruism is uniquely human, as so many people are starting to claim. And to me, I think there is a strong signal showing that actually in both chimpanzees and humans, ecological factors are very important for the understanding or the expression of altruism. I thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.